0: Hello, welcome to Medicine on Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. So I'm here in Dublin at the um, home of Mark O'Connell. Mark's a writer and he's the author of uh, The Wonderful To Be A Machine, which in fact won the Welcome Book Award in 2017. Mark, welcome to Medicine Unboxed Voices. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having us in your, in your house as well mm. and fitting me in. Um, I don't really know where to start with you in, and, and what I want to ask you about. So I'm going to just start really straight by asking you, what you understand transhumanism to be what okay. is that
1: yeah um well i can give you quite a straightforward definition yeah let's um, start that i would define it as a social movement that's predicated on the idea or belief that uh it's possible and desirable that we should um push out the boundaries of the human condition the human body our minds using um, transformative technologies uh, and that the ultimate kind of aim of these uh, technologies um, would be eradicating death and actually transcending the human condition entirely
0: so optimizing our cognition yeah and prolonging our life yeah both of those as required um achievements or either or well
1: there's no like there's no hard and fast Definition when it comes to transhumanism—that's sort of my definition—and most of the people who I met and spent time with for the book would satisfy some version of that understanding of transhumanism. Um, but it's not a—you know—it's not a religion, it's not a cult or whatever. So everyone has their own kind of, um, you know, sometimes quite idiosyncratic understandings of what the transhumanist future might mean. But m- most of the people who I met—they all want to live forever. Um, they might not necessarily all believe that it's possible within our lifetimes to eradicate death. But for all of them, it was a desirable end that was worth pursuing. Um, And yeah, all of them in some way felt that the human condition was in some way suboptimal or unsatisfactory and that uh, technology, computer technology, is the way to sort of ameliorate that.
0: But it's interesting, just even in that definition just dis- their, dis- their, dis- their, dis- their disenchantment is one that all of us at some level or the other would share yeah without a lot I think
1: I think that's why I wrote the book actually ah, go on. Um, hmm. because like it's a fascinating movement obviously and it's you know it's very provocative and intriguing to think of these people who are out there in Silicon Valley with these like crazy <laughs> ideas um, about you know turning us all into cyborgs and merging our minds with uh, supercomputers and so on. Um, but I think what really pulled me in to this whole world and this whole topic was exactly what you said. It's the idea that they're right, actually, and uh, like you know, the book is is by no means pro transhumanist, but it does emerge out of this. For me, it emerges out of this sort of core of identification. This idea that um, actually, you know, it, it it is unacceptable that we die um, on some level. It's, it's completely unacceptable. And the human condition is, um, in some ways, you know, uh, impossible to reconcile ourselves to. And that's something that I've always been fascinated by. But long before I ever came to transhumanism or, or knew what, what it was or had heard of it, I was always fascinated by this kind of, um, the way in which we find it very difficult to come to terms with the basic facts of our human existence. Like I did a PhD on john banville and this is a big thing for him actually this kind yes. of um the way in which it's just impossible for people or at least a certain kind of person to accept being human um to accept the kind of um, the pain and the, limits yeah, the of indignities of, <clears throat> of just being a human in a human body um and i think a lot of the writers who uh from a relatively young age i was drawn to uh this is an idea that they circle around a lot. Like, you know, Beckett would be another sort of obvious example. Um, And so, yeah, transhumanism immediately struck me as, yeah, a good story and, like, you know, fascinating characters and so on, but also allowing me to get at this kind of deeper preoccupation that I've always had.
0: But it's not just the discontents we share, the fact that, so technology, however we want to describe that, was you know, take it all the way back to fire does things to alleviate suffering, extend life, extend the possibilities of cognition. It's implicit to how we function, mm. both in what it achieves and what we want it to do. So what sets them apart? What Almost what um, allows the claim for transhumanism as a separate movement? To be something new ex- and different. Is it yeah. extreme? Is it, the, is it the extremes to which... It,
1: I mean, it is un, undeniably extreme. Okay. And I mean, that's, that's what, again, one of the things that... Um, I was interested in exploring in the book is is that sort of you know um, paradoxical kind of idea that you know transhumanism is in a, in a lot of ways a, like a crazy radical departure from everything that um, we know and recognize about what it means to be human but it, its extremity is somehow linked to what seems to me to be actually a kind of definition of what we have always understood our humanity to be, which is kind of inextricably linked with technology in the first place. Mm. Like, as you say, you know, the first people who invented fire or whatever, mm. already we were sort of pushing out the boundaries through technology. And mm. you I mean, you almost can't define what a human being is without talking about technology mm. Um, so there's a sense in which it's just a, a continuation of what we've always been up to, and there's, in a lot of ways, there's nothing new at all about transhumanism. There's nothing new about these ideas. The sort of the technologies that they speak about and that they invest their hopes in are are new. Yeah. You know, artificial intelligence and um, various kind of um, biotech sort of solutions to the problem of of aging and mm-hmm. so on. These are new things, um, but. The idea of using technology to transcend our humanities is not particularly new. And the idea of wanting to evade death is definitely not new.
0: It struck me, though, with the the extremity of the um, ideas that you were encountering, there was definitely a very repeatedly expressed, almost abhorrence at the idea of death. It Mm. wasn't just... um, Mm. It wasn't just a fear of mortality; it was almost a disgust hmm. that anyone would think that this is um, an acceptable outcome, and that the idea we would try and make meaning out of this was yeah. seen as almost deluding ourselves because
1: yeah. of, because of the terrible mm. pain of it. Yeah. The thing that I'm thinking of now, when you say that, is um, and it's in the book, of course. But there's um, I'm remembering a moment in uh, that. The period when I visited uh, Alcor which is this cryonics facility where um, recently deceased people are brought and preserved uh, until such time as technology will be able to sort of uh, resuscitate them and bring them back to life but I remember like waiting in the um, and this is in the book I'm 99% sure this is in the book Um, I'm waiting in the in the foyer in the waiting area um, to uh, come in and get a tour of the place and there's a on the coffee table a copy of a, a book a children's book actually called called death is wrong um which is sort of explaining <laughs> why death is unacceptable to children not explaining you know how mortality is part of the human condition and you know why your cat died or why your grandmother might have died or whatever but just no death is uh, unjust and i think that is a big part of what separates transhumanists <coughs> yeah. from your yeah. average person i mean Uh, to the extent that I can speak of myself as an average person, I, like, as I started off by saying, I do kind of feel like death is not wrong, Mm. but uh, on some level unacceptable Mm. um, in a philosophical kind of way. Mm. But where transhumanists are coming from is that, no, it's wrong. It's unjust. We need to fix it. We need to do something about it. Um, I mean, so many of the people who I talked to had this idea that um, Aubrey de Grey is a very good example. Mm. Aubrey de Grey, obviously you probably know about, um, Who's a a biogerontologist who is um, absolutely fixated on this idea of eradicating uh, death, Uh, and he has all these kind of theories and uh, supposed researches for how that's going to be viable. Um, But he explained it as the greatest humanitarian catastrophe we've ever known: mortality itself, because it, yeah, just aging. You know, just aging wipes out, um, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of people every day. You know. Um, millions, I'm sure. I've not created statistics, but it's probably millions. Um, and he described it at one point as like being being like you know seventy September Eleventh yes, every single right. day. Yeah, exactly. um, and it's just an extraordinary way to think about it. Yes, in a way, it's a kind of a really, it's a sort of an extremely logical, rationalistic way of thinking about the quote unquote problem
0: of death. And there's a way in which you can sort of squint and go, well, yeah, maybe maybe he's kind of right. Did you find that? Did you find yourself almost... Um, Because the logic is almost... The logic of it almost feels irrefutable at points. Well, that's the thing. see how
1: Yeah, I mean, that was one of the kind of central sort of... I don't want to say insights, because it was never that clear. But definitely one of the things that struck me most forcefully and most often when I was spending time with these people was that, yeah, they, are, they can be very, very persuasive and they persuade you at the level of logic, not, yeah, so not typically with emotions, yeah. but of logic. And the thing that I started to realise um, was that there's something, a, there's something very contradictory at the heart of a very logical and extremely rationalistic view of the world, which is that the further you push yourself into extreme rationalism, the crazier you actually get. In a way, well, which is really
0: interesting, isn't it? Mm. Because I mean, I almost found myself thinking there they have a very material world view. But in fact, the world is matter. We mm. are matter, <laughs> um, and their central contention is that that matter, the mechanics of us, mm. ought to be completely knowable and therefore fixable. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah, because but, we are machines. We are. Yeah.
0: Well, it isn't a million miles from modern medicine.
1: This is the really interesting thing, I think, from your point of view. Absolutely, yeah. And I think one of the reasons, that has to be one of the reasons why. I mean, the book did well, I think, particularly amongst two, maybe three groups. Philosophers have been quite interested in it, artists have been very interested in it, okay. and doctors, which I've found really uh, fascinating and gratifying. But I think you might have put your finger on why
0: that might be. It's interesting when you came, you, you had a moment where you came out of um, a transhumanist event and you describe yourself looking at the movements of your hands mm. and uh, and really seeing the, the machinery of them, mm. recognising that mm. you were really fundamentally right. a machine. Yeah, And I've had just that um, epiphany, such as it is often facing someone who might be dying and watching their movements and thinking, well, mm. you're not going to be moving very soon, yet you're moving now. What is that, you know, other than what's happened mechanics there. yeah yeah, that, yeah. That, that allows it and then at the same time allows it to go
1: it's really sort of fascinating and confounding isn't it because like i don't know maybe this is a cop-out probably it is but i feel that um it's it's both wrong and right to say that we are machines we are machines but we're not just machines mm-hmm. um and i think it's a metaphor and the idea that we're spiritual creatures as well is also just a metaphor the idea that we're animals because what is an animal only by a certain definition a kind of animated machine you know um it's it i don't know i don't don't know enough about like the philosophy of language to really get under the skin of this thing uh but it feels like it all just reduces to language and ways of talking in the end
0: there's a central paradox is there not though in the in in the transhumanist um world view in that in saying on the one hand we're completely material yet our personhood is information which we can extract, upload into eternity. Mm. Where, where are they at with that? Did you get a sense of what they felt information and intelligence therefore was mm. if it wasn't material and therefore uploadable? I,
1: I sort of find I mean, there's, there's obviously a sort of a, I don't know whether it's a paradox, but there's sort of a contradiction there for sure that, that it is this very rationalist and materialistic view of existence and of uh the human body and the human mind everything is just cells everything is just uh you know data and Mm. information um but at the same time there's a kind of a very obvious sort of mind-body dualism at the Mm. heart of it Mm. whereby you can extract this sort of stuff of consciousness (laughs) from uh, from the material of of the brain and you can still be a person. I mean, that's a very kind of, I'm not sure what the philosophical term for that is, but I suppose it's dualism, right? Mm. Um, yeah. So it's both at the same time, I think. Uh, so that, that was really interesting to me. But, it, you know, I found myself sort of nudging towards those conversations with a lot of transhumanists and mm. they weren't all completely uninterested in these questions, but it was sort of like, beside the point it was kind of (laughs) neither here nor there they weren't typically yeah well yeah i mean that's interesting to think about you know maybe if we were really stoned or something we could really get into it but (laughs) to be honest we're trying to solve the problem of death here so you know um, let's leave that to the philosophers yeah um so they are very much scientists in a way like um very i mean they are literally scientists a lot of people i talk to Mm. Uh, but very focused on a very specific sort of narrowly
0: defined problem um and what, do, what when they talk about when when people when <clears throat> communities talk about the idea of the singularity, mm. what does that mean? Um, this kind well, of almost nirvana type yeah event.
1: Well, it's it's one of those things. A bit like transhumanism itself. It's it has lots of different definitions, and you know people talk about it in lots of different ways. Probably the most uh, widespread sort of. Uh, version of the singularity the one that's kind of penetrated uh, popular culture to some extent would be ray Kurzweil's um sort of uh, vision of it which comes out of this book that he wrote called the singularity is near um and his sort of uh version of it is that um it's, it's very much based on um the idea of like the exit the, the um exponential kind of uh curve of of um progress in technology Um, and it sort of in a way can be reduced to the the idea which sort of most people are familiar with that you know is it every year and a half um, microprocessors uh, you know uh, reduce in size by half and uh, get half as expensive again or whatever it is I don't know Um, but you know computers progress at this like really sort of breakneck pace and they have done for a long time um, so he basically makes the claim that, and he's you know he's a he's a director of engineering at Google and um, quite a sort of a significant figure in, in the tech world in general, and you know an inventor of various things like the flatbed scanner. Mm-hmm. Um, but his sort of understanding of it is that um, because this exponential just keeps keeps getting like faster and faster and faster and accelerating all the time um at a certain point in the future and he actually puts a date on it which is why he's had such an impact i think by i think he says 2045 is the date um technology yeah i mean that's yeah he's making a bold stand basically um by that point technology will have become so powerful and so sophisticated artificial intelligence really is where this is focused um it'll become so powerful and sophisticated that almost as a matter of inevitability uh we're going to be able to merge with machines and we're going to be able to upload our consciousness to these artificial intelligence sort of supercomputers and we will be... I mean, it gets really crazy uh, and sort of like um, -like rapture-like with with Kurzweil Mm. Um, and we're just going to become these sort of infinitely intelligent, infinitely powerful sort of god-like beings who will not be confined to our mortal human bodies Mm. but will be able to take any form uh, or no form at all and just sort of drift through space being beings of pure thought okay um it gets really sort of uh yeah i mean religious it becomes a religion i think at that point
0: so that's being mooted at the same time as other scaremongers worrying about an ai apocalypse Mm, both 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 eventualities are yeah
1: so i kind of place those side by side in the book and you know i um spent quite a bit of time in silicon valley and talked to people who work in ai and particularly this whole area of ai safety which is um really based on this idea that um ai could run away from us our you know intelligent machines could very well become more intelligent than we are and there's some you know uh It's not a crazy belief to to think that way. It depends on how you define intelligence, of course, and that's a whole other question. Um, But there is this notion that uh, inevitably our machines are going to become more sophisticated than than we are and they'll be able to outthink us and we will be um, in a position in relation to our machines as the sort of lower primates are to us. Uh, and it will be entirely up to these machines whether they wipe us out or not and what they do with us. Um, And so there's a lot of very kind of um, apocalyptic thinking around AI in certain rarefied uh, sort of corners of of Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is that people who actually work on AI, actual sort of AI uh, scientists and so on, I'm much less concerned about these problems. Um, They'll tell you that, well, we're a really long way away from, you know, actually creating true AI. So the idea that we're going to have this sort of Terminator-type scenario is a little bit fanciful. But, you know, I met people who are really serious, you know, um, computer scientists and uh, tech people and AI people who are dedicating their lives and their careers to um, sort of trying to find ways to circumvent this, what seems to me to be... Quite fanciful problem, but who am I to say? You know? But they're not
0: just frightened, are they? They're almost oddly. It came across in your writing that they were almost oddly proud. Mm. There was a well, sort of uh, Yeah. How, you know, almost, as, almost in a, some sort of god. I think you used Prometheus analogy in there. Mm. The, that we are so extraordinary, our 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 capacity to make um, and our knowledge is so extraordinary that we might galvanize this kind of eventuality.
1: Yeah, it's the sort of Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, yeah kind of paradigm or whatever um and also i'm thinking of um you know the manhattan project um
0: tell me about that
1: well just the creation of the um first atomic bombs and and the scientists who were involved in that yeah Yeah, Yeah. particularly oppenheimer um sort of exists in in this kind of um yes realm of almost myth you know trinity yeah yeah Yeah. 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 you know the man who created the thing that could destroy the world yes um that famous quote that he came out with what was it i'm now I have become death, destroyer
0: yeah, of worlds. Detail, that's right. It? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean that um, it comes back to what you were saying earlier on in terms of the the weird um, way in which the extremes of rationality you said earlier mm. bring you to some kind of very odd thinking, right? And it almost meets circle-like with the extremes of faith.
1: Mm. Well, I think what what you were sort of <laughs> touching on there, I think is is true. Um, what you'd said previously about. You know, it does feed into this kind of narcissistic uh, understanding of, of um, you know, the tech world and, you know, the, the power and transformative uh, kind of nature of these technologies that they're making and the idea that we could make something that could either save the world or destroy the world, because it is this kind of binary thinking that you get with a lot of these people. Um, you know, this idea that, well, hopefully we'll be able to make an AI that will be able to you know, cure cancer and solve all our problems and, you know, water distribution and, you know, solve poverty and so on. They really do think that this is a a prospect. Um, But if that doesn't happen, we could wind up with a situation where it goes wrong and it could wipe out humanity, you know. Mm. Um, They're much less interested in actual existing AI, which is, you know, it's already all around us and sort of dictating a lot of what, you know, how we move through the world and in a lot of very good ways and in more sinister ways as well. Um, But it is this kind of... um, yeah, kind of absolute good or absolute evil kind of thinking. That again, it seems to me to be interestingly kind of linked with religious it, ways of. I thinking. mean, you talk
0: about and, and both of both of them at some level a means of transcending our very animal selves. Mm. According to my, you know, the Yates um, line from *Sailing to Byzantium*, which you quote, yeah. um, I have it here: "Consume my heart away, sick with desire, and fasten to a dying animal." Mm. Wanting to unfasten that, yeah, yeah, and, and religion and, and and this version of science, yeah, well, maybe many versions of science, yeah, fact, and progress, yeah, being a pull away from that. Well, there's
1: some. I mean, it's it's always been like a strand in certainly in the West, um, and probably elsewhere as well. I imagine, you know, this idea of extracting ourselves from the sort of the dying animal. You know, um, that poem saying to Byzantium, I remember, like you know, I read that in school. As all Irish kids mm. read Yeats in school. Uh, and I, you know, I went back to it when I was writing to be a machine, and I thought, Jesus, this is like he's talking about uploading his mind to a literal machine, you know, yeah. a, um, a mechanical animal, and becoming uh, a sort of a, a conscious mechanical, uh, you know, work of art. Um, that's a very transhumanist way of thinking about sort of eternal life, you know. Um, so, like, it's always been there, and it's all, like I, I, again, this is one of the things that is like enduringly interesting to me about transhumanism. Like I was thinking about this recently um and i suppose to some extent i i thought about it this way at the time when i was writing the book but increasingly the further away that i get from it i'm starting to realize that as much as i was interested in transhumanism per se as much as i was interested in it as this really interesting movement as i say with all these like very eccentric people it sort of also functioned as a metaphor for me it sort of functioned and i hope this comes across not too heavy-handedly but i hope it is part of the experience of reading the book that it works as a kind of metaphor in the way that a novelist or like a science fiction writer would come up with some like um, grand overarching metaphor uh, in in a work of fiction, um, and I see it as being like a kind of a loose metaphor or like an extreme metaphor for for lots of different things. I mean, it, it strikes me as a kind of a like a really radical kind of surreal intensification of of trends that are already existing in in capitalism and in yes. how we. Yes interact with technology and the sort of fears and hopes that we invest in uh, our technologies already so there's something about transhumanism that uh yeah it's it's sort of um it's a kind of a radical extrapolation of all these things that are already there so that's what's so interesting to me but just
0: let's it. talk about a capitalism point a bit mm. so it, much of the thinking is very human-centric it's very disregarding of all of the rest of Life and the world, Mm. and I think you at some point you talk about um, the world being understood as almost a commodity or a substrate for our intelligence Mm. rather than a thing in itself which we are part of Mm. materially, a continuum within. Now, that isn't that is a capitalist or a um, self centered Mm. ideology, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And that's problematic, isn't it? If we if we believe to some extent we can draw a straight line between. Capitalism but it's worse than some of the troubles that we find ourselves in yeah. now in the twenty-first century.
1: Yeah. No, you could say that viewing the world as a machine and viewing ourselves as machines in a way, um, is what has led us into our current sort of situation. Mm. Um yeah, I think that I think that's very true. We
0: commoditize the world, can yeah.
1: we? Yeah. Um and you know the extent to which we have separated ourselves from nature mm um that seems to me to be like again a very specific modern problem as well as being something that has always been the case but it feels like we're we're pushing up against the boundaries of that way of thinking now we're we're pushing up against the really hard consequences of like centuries and millennia of of thinking in that way
0: of it's difficult to even you and I know you find it difficult to even state that from mm. your recent piece in the guardian without it sounding gushy, you know, uh, separating ourselves from nature. Mm. But but taken just at face value, that sentence, say we haven't heard it however many times in the last five years, you're right, that's true, isn't it? Mm. That's just prima facie true. Mm. We see ourselves as somehow distinct from the world around us. Mm. And even you wrote in that piece, to the extent that we see time as a commodity, Mm yeah and it's very hard to
1: think of that as a relatively modern thing yeah you know? yes um like my you know that, that piece is is largely about my anxieties to do with time yes um which have a lot to do with being a parent and you know this sort of radical speeding up of time that everyone seems to exp- experience when when you become a parent but it's also quite a modern thing as well um this thinking of of time itself as a a non-renewable resource as something that is proportioned into kind of um, almost like money. You know, I'm I'm obsessed with the metaphor of like time is money. I I, I think about that a lot and it's sort of always in my mind, you know. It's like a sort of a mantra that's that's going on all the time. It's not very healthy, but it's there definitely. And I think it's true, you know, both uh, there's a really strong equation between those two things beyond the sort of blunt cliché of time being money um you you spend time and Mm. you only have so much of it Mm. uh and both are linked with freedom in my mind in a
0: way but i guess Um, time i mean necessarily we encounter it through our cognitions yes and even mm. bodily we encounter it Mm. which i suppose is different from the idea that we somehow own it Mm. i mean tell me a bit about the piece you wrote in the Guardian. See. in response to that, almost separated yourself from the daily flux of time and headed out for 24 hours into the wilderness. Yeah,
1: actually, there was an early draft of that piece in which I talked explicitly about why I got into this. Um, I mean, the piece is, uh, on the surface at least, about wilderness solos, which is just this practice of uh, going out into the quote-unquote wilderness or, you know, Dartmoor National Park in this case, which is probably not, doesn't satisfy any reasonable definition of wilderness, but... Um, of just going out for, say, a period of 24 hours and sitting in one place and doing absolutely nothing for 24 hours and just, you know, being and not doing. Um, and I, I got into that. I mean, it's sort of a long story, but really m- my first experience with that was partly reaction to uh, the experience of writing to be a machine, um, of just being immersed in this, like, highly mechanistic, hyper-capitalist way of thinking about what it means to be human um and so and there's a large part of my new book that is about that is about this it's about um about the solo and it it comes at it from a very different angle from the point of view of sort of apocalyptic anxieties and so on um but there's an early draft of that guardian piece in which i make that explicit and uh, i took it out eventually um for various reasons my editor david Wolfe um is is quite uh is quite specific about um, not mentioning... Like, writers not mentioning their books. And I'd never thought of that. Mm. But I think it's actually a really good rule. I think there's something strange about a writer mentioning a book that they'd written as a reason for doing something. Right. Um, it feels like breaking some kind of taboo or something, and I kind of get where he was coming from. But that is in the background right. of this piece, definitely. And I and think people who've then, read both...
0: Um, between what you're describing there and... and I mean, except, I and, I, and I haven't, of course, read your new you yet, but the links mm. there between that and the apocalypse and... Mm. Uh, um,
1: yeah, yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was a difficult one to sort of uh, vocalise in the book, really difficult one to sort of bring home completely. But part of why I ended up doing this thing of spending time in nature was that I was writing about my personal apocalyptic anxieties, <laughs> if you want to call them that, um anxieties about climate change and bringing children into the world at this particular time and so on uh and writing about other people's visions of the apocalypse and how it sort of manifests itself in the culture and and really writing about like what we're doing to the natural world what we're doing to like quote-unquote nature uh and at a certain point i sort of realized that i actually i don't know anything about nature i don't know what i don't know what i mean when i'm talking about nature i have no relationship with the natural world and uh you know, in a, in a way, my relationship with nature is still very kind of, um, I'm very much a city person, you know, yes. and uh, it's, it's... you
0: always going to fake, don't you, for even... A little one, bit, yeah. Like you, people, does,
1: yeah, yeah, goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so, it's, so that sort of process was a way of like, trying to come to some position of intimacy with, with nature, um, just as a as a way of like experimenting really as a way of like knowing more about what the world actually did it is. have
0: an enduring effect or was it sort of was a uh, half-life gone uh, no it... i think it has had
1: yeah. an enduring effect in a yeah. way that's difficult to maybe pin down but i definitely am slightly changed by those experiences um i mean the thing i wrote about for the guardian that was the third time i'd done that and uh yeah i mean that was like in a way very strange it was a really really difficult piece to write because it It builds towards this quite personal, um, you know, uh, quite intense emotional experience of, like, me weeping in a forest over my lost childhood. (laughs) Not my lost childhood, but the fact that I'm no longer a child. You know, I just was about to turn 40 at this point. So it's quite strange. And it was, like, a very strange, intense experience. And the prospect of, like, writing about this thing and having, like, this moment of me sitting under a tree weeping over a soft toy yes and people reading that on a friday afternoon yeah. in the guardian was it was difficult yeah. uh, and i really had to earn it you know i had to earn that moment uh and it couldn't it couldn't just be like you know a piece about well here's what a wilderness solo is here's what i do oh and by the way i had this really weird intense kind of trippy experience or whatever so it, it eventually became a piece about time it became a piece about my anxieties about time and my sort of in some ways quite dysfunctional relationship with time and the time of my own life which is increasingly just a preoccupation for me
0: however you i mean all of what to me much of your thought and even what um, seems to catalyse you to to think about some of these quite um on the surface of them anyway dark areas of human experience Mm. come do seem to be articulated or arrived at through your relationship with your kids. They, they, they surface a lot in your yeah. writing in a way that feels, anyway, quite unusual for a male writer to, yeah. to express. Yeah.
1: Um, so, yeah, I mean, so I've heard people say, it feels like completely natural to me. It feels like, I mean, I have various sort of idiosyncratic kind of views about non-fiction writing, I suppose, um, one of which is that, I don't know. Maybe this is not even Socratic at all. But I, I think that the the persona of the sort of um, the detached rational observer that you get in a lot of journalism is a, a complete fiction, and I don't buy it. Mm. Um, I want to know about. I want to know about the journalist. I want to know. About, I mean, not necessarily if I'm reading a report about you know what's happening in the EU today or whatever. Um, that might just get in the way of the facts, but. When it comes to sort of, you know, long-form narrative journalism or whatever, I I do want to know about the journalist. But it's um, present,
0: whether it's told or not, it's present. Yeah,
1: and that sort of um, detachment or self-effacement yes. is, uh, it's a stance yes. or a position or yes. a fiction as yes. much as anything else. Yeah, um, yeah, and, you know, what I do is is arguably, you know, quite sort of contrived in a way as well. It's a position that I've decided to take. I've decided to insert myself into everything. But for me, at least, it feels truer. It feels more uh, organic and real than it, than it would otherwise be, I think. And, and you know, it just happens because of the life that I live and the person that I am, that my children are, like, a huge part of my life, of course, but also a huge part of how I think about things. You know, I I guess because, I, I, like, I wouldn't want to write a book about something that didn't in some way... Impact my life that wasn't present in my life prior to writing the book.
0: Anyway, but what um, about? I mean, it, it strikes me that you're struck by the fragility of them as small persons, mm. and for what? Well, for want of a better word, I mean, it, it, there's this whole um, analysis of the impulse and potential realization of trans impulse towards and potential realisation of the transhumanist movement, there's no account in there, as far as I can tell, of the whole possibility of love from, from those guys. Mm. And, at the same, and here you are then at the end saying, but you know, love and our encounters with meaning in the world are bodily experiences. Mm. Almost as if you arrive to, for me as a reader, at that being still an unsolved both problem and solution. Mm. to all this other stuff you've encountered. Does that...
1: When you say problem and solution... Well, I
0: guess in that there's no... We still can't answer for it. We can't account for love. Mm. Yet somehow it's the answer to a lot of what... Um, it's a suitable challenge yeah. to a lot of what the transhumanists are asserting.
1: Yeah. Or well, certainly any sort of scientific explanations of love are, like, deeply unsatisfying. <laughs> yeah. They're, like, you know, about as shallow as it's possible yeah. to be, I think. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know... There were occasions w- when I would gesture towards this kind of thinking with transhumanists, and uh, they tend to get quite impatient with that yes. sort of thing. Well, you know, what is love? Only it's just an emotion, and emotions are all, you know, uh, neurons firing. It's all just information, so we can account for that. We can we can work it into the system. If you want to keep love, we can you know we can work that out. <laughs> we can give you a version 1.2 or whatever, and you'll still have love. Um, I mean, I'm being slightly facetious, and, you know... Uh, reducing these conversations to much more simple versions of what they were. But um, there's certainly a, a, like a strand of that. Um, and that's, again, like one of the ways in which a deeply sort of rationalistic, hyperlogical uh, way of thinking about the world um, seems to me to be very reductive and unsatisfying and uh, in certain respects, slightly crazy. Um, so yeah, I mean, in in a way, the book is about that. Like the book, um, I mean, it sounds like the most awful like sort of cringy cliche but it is unavoidably uh about what it is to be human you know um and i have no idea what that means but that's the sort of uncertainty that i'm sort of groping my way around in definitely um i'm struck by it, like that for some reason that's one of those phrases what it means to be human that always gets, sort of gets my back up and i've just used it myself mm-hmm. but you come across it so often i mean i <clears throat> i gave this talk in um my old university in Trinity College here, about a year ago, and they asked me to give this talk on what it means to be human in the 21st century. And there was me, and uh, sort of a couple of other people. There was someone from who was like a, an anthropologist who worked at Accenture, and all these kind of people working in sort of the intersection of humanity and of the humanities and technology. And uh, I just was like, it took me a really long time, and it was a very short talk. It was like 10, 15 minutes, and. just it was one of the most intense experiences of like i suppose you would call a writer's block that i've ever had because it's such a like it's such a ludicrously Mm. big question that it is in fact meaningless you know Mm. what does it mean what did it ever mean to be human you know i I remember like getting to a point of such frustration that i like i googled what does it mean to be human (laughs) in the 21st century uh and the first the very first google result was uh the uh, ticket page for the event that I was talking about, so I was like led yeah, right back in a circle yeah. to you know the the talk that I had yet to write, which is sort of a Charlie Kaufman esque.
0: But is it too
1: gesture trite
0: to at least offer that a substantial part of that answer does sit in the possibility of love?
1: Like, no more or less than it ever did, I think. But I think you're absolutely right. Like, you and I, I think, probably both share this, like, slight reluctance to go there, to say something so sentimental. But I think you're absolutely right. Because what else could it possibly mean, actually? What, What else could possibly... I mean, you know, you could argue that the meaning of life is simply to reproduce and to make more life. But that's really just another way of talking about love. You know, um, is, I, I don't know what the meaning of life is but certainly my own personal any meaning that I get from it has to do with yeah my family and my children and you know trying to teach them to love the world that seems to be enough meaning to be getting along with for me for now
0: Mark Connell that's all we've got time for thank you very much Thanks Sam oh, Medicine on Box keeps its large audio and film archive online Do take a look, but for now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy it.